We're so honored and so excited to have Kaylin Feldman here. Um, she is here as our director in residence at the Aspen Art Museum. I'll give a brief introduction, but I want to start by thanking the Question Education Fund that makes this and our other programs free. Um, it's really a special evening tonight because we're starting a new series called Art and Empathy, and it really made the most sense to invite the person who really kick-started the global and national conversation about this very topic, which she'll be sharing that with us tonight. Um, so to give a little bit of introduction to Kaylin, she's been the director and president of the Minneapolis Institute of the Arts since 2008. Under her direction, Mia recently launched the Center for Empathy and the Visual Arts, which she'll share with us tonight. Um, she's also been the director of the Fresno Metropolitan Museum of Arts and Science, the Memphis Brooks Art Museum. Um, so she has a very rich history of being a leading figure, um, including being president of the and president of the Association of Art Museum Directors. It's a great honor to have her here with us um, as the director of residence, as I mentioned, um, especially because she's very busy preparing for her role as the upcoming director of the National Gallery, which well, she will take post in March. It's been a great honor to have her here joining meetings and conversations um, and really being present for us, which has been just such a, a wonderful treat. Um, so the format for tonight's program will be a lecture from Caitlin, and then I'll join her for just a short moderated conversation. And then we'll open it up to Q&A for you all. Please join me in welcoming Kayla to the stage. Thank you so much. I'm uh, delighted to be here and take you on a bit of an empathy journey this evening. Um, I want to start with um, the sort of weekly post we all see announcements that uh, museums are on the way out, that muse usually museums and libraries that they have re reached the end of their useful life and we're experiencing the death of museums, which um, it probably won't surprise you to hear I don't actually believe in. Um, but a few reasons why people say museums are dying. Um, one is this moment of really questioning what is authority and what's a fact. And I apologize, I don't know if any of you have been abducted by aliens, <laughs> but 2.9 million Americans actually do believe they were abducted by aliens. So I don't mean to imply that that is fake news, um, because they do. Um, another you know, challenge that's known and perceived for museums is this competition for leisure time. Museums started about 100 years ago, and what, one of the things that's different now is that people are increasingly short of um, time for the weekends and family and what have you. Um, another thing that is um, often discussed is um, digital distractions. And um, I frequently hear, as perhaps um, many of you do, that art museums perhaps will be irrelevant because everybody is spending all of their time online. And besides, they can look at works of art online. And um, I completely disagree with that. And as I'll talk a bit about later, I actually think that original works of art will only become more important um, in our digital era. And it's also been noted that in art museums, people actually don't use their, their cell devices very much. Um, they do selfies, but um, it's actually a time when people, I think, want to sort of step away and look at works of art. Um, another thing that's been noted, this one really fascinates and scares me, is that people are increasingly stressed out. And um, as of 2014, it's been this new thing that um, an organization called Culture Track has been tracking that people actually are increasingly going to museums because they feel stressed out. And, um, and what sort of scares me the most, as you can see on this chart, is that millennials, the younger people are, the more stressed out they are. Um, but um, another reason um, for museums. And then, of course, there's often this comment that millennials won't be interested in the arts and go to museums. And, um, and again, not true. Uh, we are seeing that millennials um, do different things when they go to museums, so the behavior is a bit different, and they, they join museums and, and participate in museums in different ways, um, but they're absolutely interested in art. Um, somebody pointed out to me with this slide that the irony is probably they're all texting each other. <laughs> and then me, I have been heralded as the death of museums. Um, after it was announced a couple of weeks ago that I was going to be the new director of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, um, the Wall Street Journal ran this op-ed um, with this uh, title, The National Gallery of Identity Politics. Forget Monet or Hopper, the art museum's new director wants to tackle gender equality, social justice, and diversity. And um, referred to me as the enemy of art uh, because I care about equality. 
And so it's not going to surprise you from what I've said, again, that um, I disagree with all of the calls for the decline of museums and argue that art will only be more important um, in our um, era, uh, time now and ahead. And I come out of a background in classical archaeology, and so I always like to go back to the past. And um, you know, I always think about um, cave paintings and the expression that humans needed from the very beginning um, to um, paint their walls and express themselves. And I particularly like to point out that um, it's been shown that there was this moment in time when Homo sapiens and Neanderthals existed at the same moment. And it's been noted in the archaeological record that tools like arrowheads and flints and points that, that the Neanderthals were impacted by Homo sapiens. And so as they're coming together at about the same time, there's actually an impact that, that, that the um, Homo sapiens are changing the Neanderthals' technology. However, it's been shown that Neanderthals didn't make art. There's one recent article saying a couple of reindeer bones had some scratches on it and that maybe that's art. But for the most part, besides that one um, article, so what's that about? That Homo sapiens taught Neanderthals um, uh, technology but not art. And you know, I think one of my um, reasons, I think, is because making art is part of what made us human. And it's also been shown that a lot of cave paintings actually occur in sacred spots, that humans weren't living in that space. They were going there for a ritual, for something um, uh, special. And I also like to note that so many cave paintings actually include images of hands like this. And I find that really impactful. Somebody's even pointed out that in um, one of the caves in France, you can actually see where one of the hands had a broken finger. And you see the finger a couple of times in the cave. So we can actually get the sense of identity and individual in um, cave painting. And um, personally, I've just come from a trip to Greece over um, Christmas. And so I spent a lot of time sort of going back in the past and thinking about the role of art. And I was really struck by this case, which is in a museum at the um, ancient site of Olympia. These are all little um, figures of um, goats and cows and um, uh, little animals, as well as some um, tripod figures. And these were all done around the 8th century BCE. And they were left in a sacred spot. So again, I think about the human need to create these objects and to leave them in a special place of the power that these works of art had. I also looked at lots of goddess figurines across Greece um, from probably uh, the oldest one here, say um, 10,000 BCE to the most recent, which is about um, the 6th century um, BC and the role of these figures. Interestingly, the Cycladic idols mostly are buried in tombs, uh, but some of them are found outside of tombs. And very often, they're broken, but they're repaired. So we can't tell whether or not they were actually used in some way in a society or if they were just um, for burial. And my final um, uh, mention um, on the, sort of the way that I'm just overawed by the importance of artwork for people is this. Um, the temple complex at um, Alora Najanta in India. And I was there about a year and a half ago. And this particular temple, uh, known as Temple 16, um, it astonished me because this temple was carved out of rock. So this was a hillside. They carved into the hillside to create this freestanding temple. You can see it from above. It actually has several floors and layers to it. And as I was there, I was thinking about at the museum that I run in Minneapolis, we just spent a lot of time, a lot of money with a lot of experts doing a master plan for our museum. And the idea that in the 8th century, people were able to carve a temple out of rock with, I mean, the tools uh, alone are quite astonishing, but without architects and degrees and engineering and the technology um, that we have today uh, to create these things. And so there's that drive in humans to create beautiful, meaningful things. And for those reasons, um, I know that art will always be important. In my role, I'm frequently asked by audiences, what will be different in museums in the next 20 years? And my answer is always um, nothing and everything. Um, nothing because art 
art is sacred, and the works of art that we put on their walls in our museums, each work has its own integrity, and that will continue. And for some of my patrons who are worried about the museum becoming too active and you know, too lively at different points, I always point out that you can always go into the galleries and sit on a bench and have your own private moment with a work of art that will always continue in our work. And what does change, of course, is all the other things, the activation, the programming um, that really brings museums alive and um, offers people different points of entry in museums. And um, along those lines, I also, I don't give a single lecture in um, America today without mentioning that our uh, greatest challenge is also our greatest opportunity, which is um, changing demographics in America. And um, you're probably all familiar with this, um, but it's projected that right around 2043, so right around there, 2044, that America will become 50% people of color. So that change is happening. And it's such an opportunity for, for museums, of course, because um, there's so much um, work that we can do in developing new audiences. But one of the um, things that really helped me to understand what this change means for um, museums in America is this chart. And please keep in mind, it's the most recent I could find. It's from 2010. So it looks different um, even today because we're just about at the point now where the majority of people under the age of 18 are people of color. But a lot of um, my audience um, at the museum, our board members and our patrons, are sort of around this, certainly over 50, but even into the 65 to 85-year-olds. And looking for 85-year-olds in America, they grew up in an America that was 85% white. And so for them to um, really understand the changes that are happening in America, um, in addition to generational changes, of course, there's change in behavior, the fact that um, the kids who are, uh, most of the ones who are under 18 now were born digital, and so they have a completely different relationship um, with the world. And so um, museums are a wonderful place to be able to bring um, people together and have these conversations and greater understanding, but it is a moment of change um, and opportunity. And so in this discussion of you know, what's similar, what's different, um, we use logic models a lot in our um, institution, which means that you think a lot about the inputs, um, which for us is largely staff, staff time, and um, money, um, and our collections. So these are our inputs. And then the outputs are my lecture today, um, programs, projects that we do. And traditionally, museums spend a lot of their time in here. But what we really want to know is, what are the outcomes? What's the impact? How is the work that we're doing changing people's lives? How are we making a difference for people? And so we think about that in our institution. But I also think this logic model actually represents American museums, because we really spent our first 100 years focused on the inputs and outputs. Um, I think about, in, in Minneapolis, we had a trustee who um, Bruce Dayton, the founder of Target, who was on our board for 74 years. We do have term limits, but he had a special um, honorary status. And um, he, he died recently at the age of 97. And when I think about Bruce's 74-year tenure on our board, it was all about growth. All, all, everything was about, we needed more art on the walls, we need to buy more art, and we need more gallery space to keep showing art. And um, we're actively having conversations now in our museum director groups about the fact that um, more, more, more is actually less important for us now. And what's more important is what we do with the collection, how we impact people's lives. And so the rest of my um, uh, talk this evening is going to focus on this idea of outcomes and impacts, because that's what motivates me the most in the work that I do. And, um, I'm a geek about the, the word wonder. I think that so much of our museum work is about wonder. For those of you who can't see, the beginning of, of our happiness lies in the understanding that life without wonder is not worth living. And um, at MIA, our um, vision statement is inspiring wonder through the power of art. So we really 
care about wonder. And wonder is a word, I think, that's not really understood so much today. It's often associated with children, um, with something perhaps that's unsophisticated. But throughout, of course, most of human history, before computers, the internet, before wide-scale publication, um, media, television, human beings would encounter these moments with the natural world, with other parts of the world, which would inspire this feeling of wonder. My favorite definition of wonder comes from a 13th century monk, Albertus Magnus, who describes wonder as being like the moment that a heart stops and that your heart sort of shakes. And, um, and this is my favorite part. He says, wonder is the journey of a man who does not know on his way to knowing. So it's about this um, exploration, about moving from something perhaps you don't completely understand, but it stops you in your tracks. You're interested and engaged, and you want to know more. And I think that we need more moments of wonder in our lives, and that's one of the most key roles that museums provide, because we offer our visitors the opportunity to see works of art from across human creation and history that make them stop in their tracks and, um, and want to know more. And uh, quickly, my own journey with wonder. Um, when I, uh, after I graduated from the University of Michigan, I had a BA in classical archaeology. And so I decided to put off getting a proper job for a while. And I went off to work and travel around the Roman Empire. And um, in doing so, I had all sorts of really um, wonderful and scary life experiences being a woman alone, um, traveling around through um, North Africa, the Middle East. And um, had enough experiences that I decided I need to go back to um, London where I had good friends. And in, in that journey, I, went, I tried to get a train from Athens to um, Venice. Uh, that was a three-day train through the former Yugoslavia. And I was locked in a little compartment, train compartment with three teenage French boys for three days. And, um, and then there was an Italian train strike at the Italian border. Um, 7 a.m. in the morning, and luckily I had a thousand lira on me, which got me a bus in the first day. And then I got another bus to Padua, and I, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. I thought, I could have a shower, I could eat a proper meal, or I could go see the Scrovani Chapel. I've got an hour before it closes. And you know, I went back and forth and, and decided to go to the Scrovani Chapel on the screen here. And the Scrovani Chapel was painted by the artist Giotto in the 13th century. And um, it, it's painted with scenes of the life of Christ. And I'd been through such a difficult time um, over the prior couple of months and spent so much of my time alone um, because I was traveling alone. And it was really at one of my lowest human moments. And these paintings absolutely changed my life. I was so moved and overwhelmed by the wonder of the beauty of the execution of how visionary Giotto was in the 13th century to start to depict emotion, the composition of the pictures, the um, you know, action and um, uh, drama in the pictures, the beautiful colors. Um, I just stood in front of the paintings and, and cried. And, um, the ultimate effect is I walked out of the Scrovani Chapel, a quote here from Goethe, the mere knowledge that such a work could be created makes me twice the person I was. And as I walked out of that chapel, I was on cloud nine. I felt completely at peace with the world. I felt connected to humanity and to people, um, rejuvenated. Um, I, I was excited about life and the beauty in our world. It was a moment of wonder for me that really um, changed my whole career path. And that's when I switched from archaeology to art history. And so wonder comes in a few different forms. One form is social wonder, um, where we might perhaps be moved by the speech. I can't hear Dr. King's I've been to the mountaintop speech without having the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, without feeling overwhelmed and passionate and um, overawed by um, this man's um, dedication, his sacrifice, um, his oratory, um, or other philosophers and um, perhaps religious leaders. And there's cognitive wonder when you actually understand something that, that we use the phrase blows your mind where you, you figure it out. And um, I had that moment when I was in fifth grade and we were studying dinosaurs. And I couldn't conceive of how big a T-Rex was. 
And during the um, lunchtime break, my teacher sent me out with a measuring stick in the playground and chalk. And I actually measured out how tall a T-Rex would be. And again, completely astonished me. I saw dinosaurs in a whole completely different way uh, because I wondered at the scale of these creatures. And then physical wonder, which can be um, looking at nature or it can be looking at a work of art in a museum where again you stop and you stare and you really wonder, you want to know more about the creation of that work of art. And in my fascination for wonder, one of the things that I have learned is that social scientists have actually done a lot of research about wonder. And what they have found is that when we experience wonder, just like I did at the Scrovaney Chapel, that we actually become less narcissistic. We stop worrying about ourselves, our schedule, whether or not we've had this meal or the shower. We stop looking at our phone. We feel more connected to the rest of humanity. We, we're less caring about ourselves. People are more likely to volunteer time and to donate and to engage with other human beings at the moment that they feel wonder. And again, how important that that happens in museums, which are open to to everyone so all of us can come together and have that experience of wonder. Which then leads us to think about the role between wonder and empathy. And that's so much of what our work um, at me is about now because we know we believe in wonder. And I just mentioned that when you feel wonder, you feel closer to humanity. You feel more open to understanding other individuals. So it sort of leads us to then, what does that mean about empathy? And there's actually no research yet about what the connection is exactly between wonder and empathy. And so that's one of the things that we are embarking on in our work is to better understand that. Um, and this is this beautiful Ife shrine head here from the 13th century is in our collection at Mia. And um, as I go through my wanderings about the building, this is one of those works where I stop and I feel complete awe over the beauty, the nobility, the elegance of this um, object. And um, so that next step then is to sort of feel empathy, whether it's for the um, image of the sitter or the artist who made it or the people that worshiped and um, originally used this work of art. And so as Michelle said, we started the Center for Empathy in the Visual Arts um, at MIA. And it is a multi-year project trying to do research to figure out um, how can we actually better understand empathy and what happens when people experience original works of art, what happens in art museums, and um, how might we do a better job, perhaps, of fostering empathy. And, and it goes back to my earlier comment with the logic model of museums now starting to spend more time on what's the impact? How can we actually move the dial in making the world perhaps an even better place um, by um, really leveraging and expanding on the role of art and artists in our community. And it's interesting that empathy actually originally in the West came out of the visual arts. So humans, of course, have always been empathic, but we didn't coin a word for empathy until 1870. Isn't that fascinating? Until 1870. And it was a German philosopher who first, first came up with the idea and the word he created is einfühling, to, to feel into something, this idea that by looking at a work of art that you can get closer to another human being. And um, I also think it's interesting that empathy was born in Fantasiecle Europe, or I, the concept of empathy um, in the Western world was born in the Fantasiecle. And I think there are a lot of parallels to um, that period of time in Europe and some of the uncertainty and um, challenges that we have in our world today. So I don't think it's um, uh, by chance that there's a greater focus in the world on empathy right now. And this question of why empathy now and why are we focused on this? Um, we're working with a professor from Indiana named Sarah Conrath and um, she points out that there's really a moment of existential crisis in America. We're seeing um, as um, on the list kind of um, decreasing social participation. Um, that book, Bowling Alone, people aren't joining organizations in the same way that they used to, whether that's um, Rotary or other community organizations, um, churches, or um, uh, even um, arts organizations. You've seen that the performing arts are seeing a decline in membership. 
people are still going, but they don't identify the way um, people used to as, I'm a member of that museum, I'm a member of um, that organization. They're still going, but the idea of joining and associating is a bit different. Um, the rising sense of individualism, one of the other things that scholars have shown is that when they ask college students, do you think you're really important? The number of people who say yes keeps going up, that it's um, this much greater focus on the individual um, and um, their um, independence um, in, in culture and society. Uh, so there's also been several studies showing that empathy is in fact declining in America. We sort of sense it sometimes. And this particular study that's on the screen has been done with um, college students starting in 1979. And it, you can just see the trend line. Um, the um, top one is, uh, is empathy and the second one is perspective taking, you know, taking a moment to um, understand yourself better and identity better. Um, so empathy is in decline. Scholars have also shown that, that um, empathy is genetic. Some people are actually born with more empathy than others, but it can be taught. So it's um, something that still can be, be learned in the process. I also find as I talk about empathy, people assume empathy means just being nice. It's a generally good things. I've had other people say to me, well, nobody really knows what empathy is. But um, it's actually not true. Uh, we do know exactly what empathy is. Um, there are three types of empathy. Um, one is somatic, and it's also known as mirroring neurons. And that's when you, know, you smile and I smile too. It's automatic. It just happens. Um, the neurons in the brain mimic what you're doing. And even in the primate world, um, we see occasions of somatic empathy, so um, something that happens physically. There's cognitive empathy. So I can read about a situation. Um, I can perhaps look at an image, or you can tell me about it. And I can understand it intellectually. I feel empathy intellectually. But it doesn't mean I necessarily I feel what you feel. And so the third form of um, empathy is affective. And that's you, you tell me, you show me, you explain, and I feel it. And through this uh, work that I've done with the Center for Empathy, um, I've had my own sort of journey of understanding empathy personally. And what I've discovered is that in tests, I, I come up really high on cognitive. I like to hear about it. I like to read. I like to look. But I, I, I'm low on affective. I'm not necessarily feeling what you say. And so that's been a real wake up for me to try to figure out how to do a better job at that. And, um, it may be hard to see on the screen, but the actual image comes from a, a virtual reality experience that the film director Alejandro Iñárritu did called Carne y Arena. Uh, it was on view for quite a time. I think it might still be at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And he uses virtual reality for you to have an experience um, crossing the Sonora Desert as an immigrant. And he built the whole um, experience based on um, the related experiences of other immigrants who had crossed the Sonora Desert. And you go through this experience completely alone with the virtual reality headset. And, um, and it's really, really striking and impactful. And people have talked about the fact that virtual reality actually might be one of the best ways that we can engage in um, empathy work. And one of the other things that really struck me about um, um, Carne Irena is that after you go through the virtual reality experience, there's a hallway with images of um, video um, portraits of the people who told their stories to the director and where he, he got his content from. And you see the images of the faces, and then he switches over to the text and the, the voice. And I, I was struck by it because so, so often what we do is we put the face and the text underneath. And um, what he was doing is that when we do that, you stop looking at the face and you just read the text. And so he was forcing us to look at faces and again having greater empathy for human beings and taking the text um, secondarily. And then I wanted to go through some points. Um, I, I uh, meant to say at the beginning that we're all at the start of our empathy work. And so um, we are doing a lot of um, testing. We're gathering data. We're working with um, social scientists, both at the University of Minnesota and at Berkeley. And if you have interest in 
some of these areas we're talking about this evening. There's um, a great online presence um, from the um, um, uh, Berkeley Center for um, Greater Good Science Center. And they publish and research a lot about wonder, awe, and empathy, um, and are doing really interesting research on it. So they're our partners on this project. Um, one of the things that I have learned through this journey is that feeling vulnerable is really important to feeling empathy. And um, I show you images from our museum in Minneapolis. And I've, I've spent a lot of time really um, struggling with this, because our museums are not built to encourage people to feel vulnerable. And um, you know, our, this uh, museum in Minneapolis, um, we're so committed to our community and community engagement. And yet that building is like a fortress. You know, it's, it's not permeable like this um, wonderful institution is. And, um, and so it's very closed. Um, this is one of the few windows we actually have um, in the institution. Um, so uh, hard surfaces, you know, usually hard seating. Um, uh, it, it, our, our structures don't necessarily lead to feeling um, empathy. Another really key thing is we have to be proximate to other people to feel empathy. Um, I was recently asked at Minnesota Public Radio if I could take one work of art to Washington, D.C. with me, what would it be? And um, I'm a scholar of Dutch painting, and so it, I, I felt very guilty to leave the Rembrandt behind. But I decided I would take this painting by Goya, which is in our collection, which um, I think is absolutely astonishing. This is a self-portrait of Goya here, and he's in the arms of his doctor, Dr. Arietta. It's a kind of ex voto, actually in um, Spanish at the bottom, Goya writes that this is a portrait of him with his doctor, Arietta, who healed him um, at a moment of sickness um, in 1819. We don't actually know exactly what Goya had, but Arietta was a plague specialist, so we sort of think that might be it. Um, but I think this painting is astonishing because a man has depicted himself in the arms of another man. You can see he's in his, his pajamas, he's clutching at the bedclothes, his head is lolling back. It's a moment of ultimate vulnerability. Um, hard to see in this um, image, but there are actually these faces in the background, which we're not really sure if they're priests there to deliver the last rites or sort of the furies coming to get Goya. But I think this is a painting about vulnerability and about love. And um, although it appears on the cover of like every medical convention, um, <laughs> it's the power of medicine and the doctor has medicine in his hand. Um, but we've got to get close to people. And of course, um, museum visiting is a social activity. Majority of visitors who go to museums all over this country go with somebody else. It's rarely a solitary experience. So we are with another person, but how do we get closer to other people um, through works of art? And something that I've been very struck, our museum in Minneapolis is what we call an encyclopedic museum. And so we have 5,000 years of human um, history um, in the collections from all across the globe. And I promise you, I randomly went up to, um, in this case, our American gallery, our Impressionist gallery, and one of our contemporary galleries, and just photographed what you saw from the middle of the room. And if you look at these images, what you see is people. Our Western tradition is so filled with people, whether it's portraits, uh, mythological paintings, biblical paintings, history paintings, sculpture, we, we fill them with people. And there's a great sense of actually having empathy for artists of the past. It gets a lot harder in galleries with um, cultures that don't necessarily represent um, humans. And so a, a photo of our one of our Japanese galleries, our African gallery, and our Islam gallery. And what I've discovered in this empathy journey is that our public assumes that we are less empathic as an institution to people from these other parts of the world because they can't see people in the spaces. And so, you know, I know that the cultural tradition perhaps is different in these areas, but it makes people feel cold in those spaces and like we aren't actually open to people from other cultures. Another thing that's been proven is that we are much more likely to have empathy with people who look just like ourselves. We gravitate towards people who look um, just like we do. So something else in museums where so much of 
you know, museum visitation, of course, is completely open and free. You can go in whatever direction you want. You can see what you want. You can ignore what you want. Um, and we have a bias for bias. So actually, most people who go to museums often go to have their own ideas and biases actually confirmed. It's, it's more rare that people go to have their own assumptions and biases actually questioned. And I have poor Nebuchadnezzar here who refused to have um, an ear and um, to um, have empathy for other individuals and was condemned to a life of depravity here, illustrated by William Blake. Another thing I've learned is that museums have to be authentic in the empathy journey. And um, really, it always has to come from the work of art and um, a, a greater understanding of, of cultures. Um, we're very proud that, like this museum, our museum has free admission. And um, so we've done a, a sort of brand campaign and um, across the, the community, um, which we started a couple of years ago, saying we're free, everyone is welcome, always. And then last summer, we did a broader campaign where we um, published the same text, but we did it in five different languages. And so um, Spanish, but also we have a large Somali population that lives around the museum. We did it in Somali. We did it in three different Native American languages because we have a large Native American population. And um, as somebody pointed out to me, we didn't apologize. So as you can see from the text, we never translated it. So if you don't understand Somali, sorry. Um, and we, we, of course, tended to um, congregate in neighborhoods where speakers of these languages lived. Um, but it's, again, about being authentic to our um, work um, with different communities. Then there's this other issue of museums, art museums. We're, we're often hesitant about including the human narrative, about voices of people, about images of people. And so we might have this beer pot where we don't know um, the name of the artist. Um, so often we use the phrase in museums, you know, anonymous or unknown. And um, I recently discovered a museum in Australia that instead of saying anonymous or unknown, they say once known. I just think that's beautiful um, to acknowledge that they were made by people and those people were once known. And so um, it, it, our strategy in MIA is to have a work of art um, in the gallery that can be appreciated for its formal aesthetic qualities, the beauty. You can spend as much time with that object as you want. But we're increasingly trying to add people in as well. And so we have seating with iPads um, with perhaps stories of a contemporary maker. So she's not the maker who made this pot, but perhaps by hearing from her, we have more empathy and understanding for her as well as whomever made or used the beer pot. We're also hesitant in art museums to have photographs of people. And um, we recently did an exhibition of Somali artists in our community. And somebody, uh, a member of the general public said to me, why don't you have photos of the artists? I want to see them. I want to know what they look like, who they are. And with that show, too, it was particularly important because we had three generations of artists, an elder down to a 22-year-old woman. And um, I think that the show could have been even more impactful for people to actually understand that there were three generations in the show. But we shy away from that in art museums. Um, and so we're having really active conversations um, at MIA about including more images of people, but being sure that we don't only do it in the non-Western galleries. A really tough one is that curiosity is key to empathy. You actually have to have some internal curiosity that you want to know more about someone or something. And that's a hard thing, of course, because we can't demand that only curious people come to our museums. But I think, in general, probably people who tend to be more curious and probably more empathic tend to go to art museums. Um, but we can't um, instill curiosity necessarily. Um, but it's also telling that art museums used to so much have a focus on education, that we're going to teach you something, we're going to tell you something. And now it's much more about fueling curiosity, that we want you to be a part of that learning um, journey. And then my last one is coevalence of time, that um, in our encyclopedic museum, there's this really funny relationship between contemporary art and historic collections. And I have on the screen an installation in a um, reception hall that we have that's a Chinese reception hall from the 17th century that we brought over from China. 
and, um, and it has um, Chinese hardwood furniture um, installed in the um, gallery. And um, a couple of years ago, we added this um, marble chair by the artist Ai Weiwei in the space. And Ai Weiwei has his own story about the Cultural Revolution and the role of, of, uh, the ch of uh, another um, yokma chair in his family life. And I had a call from a very important um, patron of the museum who told me it was offensive to have contemporary art in with the historic Chinese collection. Doesn't bother people when contemporary art is in the American galleries or European galleries. We like this idea of um, cultures um, that perhaps are uh, different from American culture, um, that they should be frozen in time and fit with our own idea of what art from that time and place is. And so something else um, to figure out and so my last few minutes, um, I would like to talk a bit about what does this specifically look like in terms of artists and artwork um, at the museum. And um, one example is a small exhibition we did last year that was inspired um, because of the tragic shooting death of Philando Castile. Um, Philando was pulled over by a policeman because he had a, a taillight that was out and um, was fatally shot by the policeman as part of that traffic stop, and it created huge um, concern and trauma across our community. We received a phone call from this wonderful woman, Valerie Castile, who's Philando's mother, and she said that artists from all across the community had sent her, she was overwhelmed with artwork that they had made about her son. And she was so touched by the artist's generosity that she wanted to share it back with the community. And so um, we did this exhibition, and I have to say that a lot of people, for example, um, some of my trustees, we're concerned about this show and that we would offend um, our African-American community, that we would f offend the community that felt that the white police officer had been justified um, in shooting Castile. And what I realized um, with this exhibition, that it was an exhibition about love and compassion and empathy, and that artists from across the community had made work. In some cases, it was immediate. This, um, a uh, clay piece was made by an artist who, as soon as she heard the news of Philando's shooting, um, she created this heart with the question marks and the why and, and rent it um, in half. Um, she made it immediately. Um, here is a quilt made by an elder in the community. Um, and she made it over a year's worth of time. And um, on the back of the quilt is a little um, square that notes that she made it for Valerie um, to bring her comfort and, and, um, um, and human kindness during her time of trauma. The artist actually asked us not to put it up on the wall, but to have it available in the gallery so people could wrap up in it and feel comfort um, as they were uh, witnessing the, the exhibition. Um, but throughout the exhibition, I was struck that um, artists who, who wrote their artist statements and every work of art was reflecting the need to remember a human life and the need to mark that Philando Castile was a part of our community, that he died tragically, and that we want to remember him. And um, one of my own journeys through this process was my uncle, who when I was a child, I was about six years old, was shot um, by a stranger who just drove up outside of his house and, and fired um, bullets. Um, and I don't think every day about my uncle. I didn't know him very well at the age of six. But this show, again, empathy had me thinking a lot about our need to remember a life and, um, and also brought me closer to um, Valerie Castile, who um, I just have to say, one of my greatest joys of working in Minneapolis was getting to know Valerie, who um, I always say to her that after this tragedy, she could have pulled her curtains and sat in the living room and never gone outside again. And instead, she's a leader in our community and has started a foundation because her, her son um, worked at a school and he would pay off the lunch debt of the students in his school regularly. And so she started a foundation. She's paid off all the lunch debts for all the kids in Minneapolis and St. Paul and is now working on other cities around the country. Um, she's really remarkable. We've also um, worked with the, the artist Elisa Niesenbaum, who has the most wonderful practice um, that's based on empathy. What she likes to do um, 
This is a partnership we do with a local uh, Latino cultural center. And um, she came in for a three-month residency. And she likes to get to know her sitters by making art with them. And um, you can see a class she did of um, portrait painting. And this is Elisa here. And so for her, the empathy, art is part of the empathy journey. And so she gets to know them. And then her, her painting here is each one with her portraits of other people. And um, I've said to Elisa that um, I admire her as an artist, and I think her um, work is excellent for lots of reasons. But I do think that her um, empathy sets her apart, that um, in this particular case, I don't know any of these people. Probably none of you do either. But don't you like them? You want to get to know them? They all look like characters. Um, they look interesting. And um, so she's, I, I am fascinated by her empathic process. And then the last artist I wanted to mention is uh, Dario Robletto, who's a Houston-based artist. And Dario has spent, he's very interested in science, and he spent a good part of his career thinking about the golden record, this record that um, was um, done by, primarily by Carl Sagan. And it was the idea that he wanted to um, record our world on this golden disk and send it up in Voyager so that if there's a point um, millions of years from now when we're all gone and our civilization is gone, people from um, the outer spatial world uh, will be able to play this and understand who we were. And um, Dario has this quote, of all the things we've contributed to on the planet, human love is one of the things that should be remembered. And so for this golden record, the artist Andrewian, or the, the um, scientist Andrewian, um, who was um, secretly in love with Carl Sagan, they ended up marrying, um, they hooked her up, um, and she did an EEG and an EKG, and she just thought about love for an hour. So we don't know exactly what Anne thought about. Whatever she thought is floating around in the universe right now. And, um, and it's led Dario on this project where he really cares about how we can have greater empathy for people in the past through works of art and for people in the future. And I'm pointing out that as we wreck the environment in our universe, as um, we uh, play fast and loose with the economy, all the things that we do, that um, how much are we thinking about empathically for the people who are going to follow us? And Dario has done this great recent um, body of work where he explored the um, earliest recordings of the human heart. And you can see they were from 1854 to 1913, almost all from European collections, um, all done with usually human hair and soot, um, with somebody hooked up um, with her pulse usually, recording the human heartbeat. And these are individual works of art that Dario has created through a very complicated printing process, also using um, soot um, on the paper. And um, these are all different hearts from different parts of um, Europe. But he starts the portfolio of 50 hearts with somebody who's just been born. It's the very first pulse. And it ends with um, Flatline, a man who died of stomach cancer. And um, just looking at them, can't you feel this sense of, of people and, um, again, empathy for people in the past? Um, he's recorded one of people um, before and um, during um, experiencing emotion. And then my favorite one is religious guilt. And this one, he actually um, was written about the creation because apparently a man, this was from 1876 in Paris, and he was all hooked up to be recorded. And the doctor got distracted and was over in the corner doing something at the moment. And at that exact moment, the noon church bells rang. And all of a sudden, his heart starts to go like this. Um, and it's because he knows he should be doing his rosary. He feels really guilty because the bells are going off and he's sitting there. And the doctor didn't know any of this and turned around and looked at it because, what did you do? And he said, nothing. It was just this internal. Um, and so um, uh, Dario um, notes that he was uh, raised by his grandmother and he was with her when she passed away. And he actually felt her final heartbeat. And so. Um, He's been on this process of wanting to really capture the human heart. And ultimately, he wants to give a gift back to Andrurian. Um, and he sort of says, what do you give a woman whose heart and mind have gone um, circulating in the um, solar system? Uh, so remarkable artist. And I'm going to close here sort of where I started. Remember in the cave with the human handprints? 
in my recent um, trip in Greece, I was really struck all over again in a way that I wasn't when I was in my 20s and studying Greek archaeology by the tradition in um, Greek grave markers. They depicted death as this moment of um, two loved ones shaking hands, holding hands and shaking hands. It's that moment of final contact and departure. And, um, and so you can see it. This is a fragment of what's left. And I was really, really struck. Again, I'm 52 now. It didn't hit me when I was 20. But at 52, I thought so much about empathy, about the way that we um, want to remember the past, and the ability, again, of works of art to give us connection to people that we may not either know personally or have known throughout history. Um, and that art is one of the vehicles that can actually make us have a greater connection with other people, um, which then impacts, I think, our treatment of one another and, and behavior. So um, I'm going to finish with that slide, um, but I don't know if we have time for questions. Yeah, oh, yeah. Gonna, yeah. Gonna oh, thank you. Um, 
You know, I think that, um, I'm sorry, I distracted myself. Could you, yeah. Not knowing and what we can learn. Yes, thank you. Yes, 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 yes. So the second part that I wanted to say um, is an exhibition that we did at MIA last year um, with the artist, the theater designer, opera designer, um, Robert Wilson, New York-based. He does productions all over the world. And um, he wanted to do a different kind of exhibition with us. And so it was an exhibition about the Qing Dynasty. And he used works of art from our collection from the Qing Dynasty. And it was an exhibition that had two introductory panels about the artist and about the Qing Dynasty. And after that, there's no text, there's no audio tour, there's no human being to tell you anything. And each room was a complete immersive setting with um, sometimes it was one object and sometimes it was 50 objects. Um, he brought in a sound um, designer who created incredible settings. Each room had a soundscape and had a smellscape and it was completely immersive. And you know, a lot of people loved it, a lot of people hated it. They were so mad at us that there weren't ways to learn while you were there. And one of the things we had hoped was that it might actually engender greater curiosity because unlike our normal projects where we tell you everything, this is one where we hoped that people would um, go off and, and try things. So it was both a, a, a changed process for us, and, and the people got upset. I said, you know, there's no harm done. We're going to take it all down. We're going to put the objects back in cases. There's text panels. You know, it's it's merely an experiment, and um, and I think that's so important in our institutions is to keep trying things uh, because often there's, there isn't actually a right or wrong answer. Um, there are also different approaches. The constant work. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to hand it over to if there are any questions. Uh, it's not so much of a question, but I'm originally from Minnesota, so I was excited to see that you were talking to me. And I know one of your um, one of the things that you focus on is like the impact. You know, how do people like take away from going to the museum? And when I was younger, it was always hard for me, like when you're growing up and you you're learning like about different Asian cultures and going to the museum and seeing the room, the Japanese room and the Chinese room and like the different artifacts of history always stuck with me and it always just put it in perspective and it wasn't like, you know, there was a, a sign that said like this is the difference. It was just the visualization of seeing those differences um, that was impactful and it still carries with me today. So. Um, it's do, do you remember as a child, did it make, me, make you more curious to know about these remote places or less because you didn't understand it? Uh, it was, I was more curious because, you know, just like the intense detail and it, there was one, it's just coming back to me now, but um, a garment that was, that was made and, and it, I just sat there in front of this garment and I was like, that had to have been made by one person. That was their sole life's work, is making this one garment. And and I was just astonished at that, like the work. I mean, could you imagine doing the same thing every day? And and I, I found it so interesting. And um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your Absolutely, yeah. Question, yeah. But yeah. It's, it's a great museum. I took classes there when I was little, so. And mentioning Asian collections, um, we recently had a huge request from um, a man whose, whose grandfather had made um, a big donation of Japanese works of art to the museum um, in the 18, or 1940s, rather. And um, as, as the donor and I were talking about um, this funding, I was struck because if you had asked me, back to my logic model, even 10 years ago, where we might want that funding to go, it would have been to buy more Asian art. That, that's, you know, every museums were just all about acquiring more, more, more. And I actually said I wanted the funding to go towards enhancing the understanding and appreciation of Asian art history and culture um, because the Twin Cities is, we have one of the greatest Japanese collections in the world and Chinese. Not a logical place for you to find the greatest Japanese collection necessarily. And so we wanted to use the funding to actually work from little kids to senior citizens to help um, give windows in to 
help them to, to really appreciate and understand that rope that you saw as a child. Um, so again, Harold is really different moment in museums. And going off of that, like the simplicity of the Japanese, I would say, you know, I now work at Masakisa in, in Aspen, and it, it's something that was that impactful where I've always had that curiosity of Japanese culture, and it not needing to like pick sides, but there's something about like the elegance that really made me feel comfortable and, and seeing it in the room, you know, and it wouldn't even, I didn't even consider traveling to that, you know, for a destination like that, but seeing that was just like, wow, it's so peaceful and it looks so calm and I, and I, yeah. It's wonderful, thank you. That's why we do what we do. Yeah. Any other questions? Great, well, I'll ask for one big round of applause to say again, thank you, Kim, for being here.